Amen. We're in, if you're a guest with us, we, you've joined us as we're doing a, a sermon series through the book of Joanna, and we're in chapter 3, verses 6 to 10. We have two more sermons. That'll be uh, August 6th and 13th, and I'm, I've already finished writing them. Um, I'm really excited about preaching them because Jonah is such an awesome book, and, and uh, there are some wonderful hidden pictures of Christ in the and especially in the last chapter of Jonah. So, uh, in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage? Jonah chapter 3, verses 6 to 10. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. Have you ever had a do-over? A do-over that you didn't deserve at all. Maybe your teacher failed you in a, your paper and she graciously said you can try again. Or, or maybe you did a job and you knew it wasn't your whole heart and you got to go back and do it right. Or maybe you were at odds with a friend and said some things you shouldn't and that friend was gracious and forgave you and restored the relationship, gave you a second chance. Well, this is where Jonah's at. He's getting his do-over. He realized his mistake, and he had a change of heart, and he did what God asked him to do. He made that some 300-plus-mile journey on foot to Nineveh to preach to those, um, those people who were very violent and, and wicked. So we ended last time with him standing on that shore of the Mediterranean covered in fish vomit, and he was given this do-over. He had taken a sin detour to get away from God's presence, and after three days in that fish belly, figuring, try, fighting to survive and, and finally coming to the end of himself, he forsook his vain hope that somehow he could get away from God and live a happy life without God and in, again embraced the steadfast love of God. You could say that like the prodigal son, he finally came to his senses. It was then that he heard a repeat of the original assignment, the original mission, to go and preach to the Ninevites. So after traveling those hundreds of miles, he entered into that imposing city of Nineveh with its hundred-foot-high walls. Walking a day into the city, he began to proclaim the words that God gave him, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. To his surprise, the people of Nineveh 
believed God, the scripture says, which is something we pray will happen in our own nation. Amen? Wouldn't that be wonderful? If the Spirit of God fell on America like it did on Nineveh and everybody repented sincerely from their whole hearts, believed God, that's my prayer. I hope it's your prayer too, that God would give us a do-over, another chance. Verse six, the word of the Lord reached the king of Nineveh and he rose from his throne and removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Every class of society put on sackcloth and fasted. So it, the word of that came to the king. He, it, it was before he issued the edict. And so he saw what the people were doing and he joined the people in donning sackcloth and sitting in ashes. The fact that he believed God was, of course, a work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes for reasons un only known to God, he'll bring conviction on an entire area. We refer to those times as great revivals. We recently saw it in the film, The Jesus Revolution. And we have saw glimpses of it on television as it was reported in the Asbury Revival in Kentucky. These events usually are preceded by a falling away in which evil seems to be overwhelming. A Christian producer made a, a video series of revivals that had happened in different places in the world, in Cali, Colombia, uh, where the whole town seemed joined in days of worship and uh, the drug trade was just beaten back for a time. In the island of Fiji, and with it, God brought healing of, of the water. The, the salty well turned clear again, and now you can buy Fiji water at your supermarket. And different places throughout the world. And of course, in history, there's been several great revivals that affected entire nations. And the results were that uh, people in that area turned to Christ, gave up their addictions, forsook their false gods, resolved their differences, and the crime rate would just plummet. Crime drastically dropped. I remember uh, when we went to a Promise Keeper event in Los Angeles, and um, it was a, a two-day event, and it, it was on a weekend, and everyone prayed for the crime situation in Los Angeles. And during those two days, there was no violence and no arrests. It was amazing. And it was because the Spirit of God was working there at the time. And yet, historically, the areas that experienced these great revivals often revert to their old ways within a generation. And that's what happens to Nineveh as well. Each generation has to have its own relationship with Christ. Um, it's often said there's, we'd have no spiritual grandchildren. Um, they in other words, it, we, we don't just give our faith to the next generation without them making an intentional choice to choose Christ. We can teach our faith to our children, but they have to personally decide to receive it and decide to walk in it. 
when you read through the history of the Israelites, you it's this sad up and down story, you know. And as you as you read the history in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you have these times when there's a godly king and the nation turns to God and they get rid of the idols and they're blessed and they have an abundance and then people turn away from God, start worshiping the idols again. Maybe that king dies and his son takes over and the country goes back to their old ways and then an enemy nation comes in. God uses uh, tr trials and tribulation to get people to turn back to him. There are a few times when a king will bring great reform to the country. In the case of Nineveh, everyone had this sense of urgency and of the need to repent. Jonah never made it to the king's presence. Word reached the king of the prophet's message and, and how the people were responding to the message. And he left his throne and sat in ashes, sometimes translated dust, sat in dust, and wore sackcloth as an extremely humbling act. This king would have been king of all Assyria, which was the, the greatest empire in the world at the time. We don't know exactly what the date is, so we can't be sure which king it is. My guess is that it was Ashur-Nirari. He realized that nothing else mattered, not his dignity, not his power, not his possessions. He had to get right with God to save his nation. He was in the position Jonah was in when Jonah told the mariners to throw him in the sea. It was, it was time to make a drastic change. The fate of his own life and that of all those he reigned over was dependent on urgent action requiring a complete change in their ways. Verse seven, and he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water. So, not only did he himself repent, but he issued this edict that everyone within Nineveh needed to follow suit. The entire city needed to fast from food and water. Now, you can't survive with water, uh, water for more than three days. So we don't know exactly what time frame, what, what's, whether this is toward the end of those 40 days or where it took place, but... It, apparently everyone obeyed the command and they wouldn't let the animals eat or drink as well. And they were crying out to God. Now, when Jonah was with the mariners, he told them about Yahweh, the God of Israel. In Nineveh, he's using the general term for God, the Aramaic uh, term Elohim, which is was in, in that whole region was the God of creation, the God creator. Nineveh was a, a polytheistic area and they would have believed that there were many gods, but there was the great God creator and that's who they're crying out to. Um, though they were polytheistic, they recognized that supreme creator. Some critics of the Bible say that the fast was called for in verse five, and then in this verse, the king proclaims the fast. And they say, well, that, that's backwards. See, the Bible has errors. 
it, they got this, this whole thing backwards. The king issues an edict and then everybody does it. But often in Hebrew, they will tell the results and then they will follow it with by how the results came about. And it's sad that you can find so many teachers who will find criticisms because of their either their own ignorance of Hebrew tradition or they just want to find reasons to criticize the Bible and hope you don't know the difference. Jonah didn't name the sins that the people were re to repent of, at least as far as we know. The conviction of the Holy Spirit identifies sins in our own lives. Most people know already the wrong that they are doing. If we take time to be still before the Lord and ask what we've been doing that displeases Him, we'll know in our hearts. You know, um, we support Hope Cottage in Flagstaff. And they have a wonderful practice that when these homeless women come in, the leader or the, that's on call at the time will take them into a prayer room and pray with them and they'll ask them to pray about how they got into the situation and ask them to listen and ask God what things need to change in their lives. And they'll pray until they hear from God. And then they'll encourage them when they know that they're on the right. But it doesn't take long because we know. We know in our hearts where we've been failing God. And that's the beginning of a turnaround for those women. In fact, most of the staff at Hope Cottage are women that came in off the street and now work for Hope Cottage. The Spirit will bring things to our mind and show us how things we've been justifying are worse than we would like to think they are. Repentance isn't just a sorrowful heart, but as the king said in a previous verse, it's sorrow that results in turning from our evil ways. Repentance means to turn, to turn around and go the opposite direction. A true, a cha a true change of heart will result in a difference in the way one lives. In Paul's letter to the Romans chapter 10, verse 13, he quotes the Old Testament prophet Joel, writing that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That does not mean to say that, that we say God's name just right. You know, there are those people that say that we have to say Yeshua or Yehoshua, or they get all into the pronunciation of the name. It means to cry out to his attributes. For Hebrews, the name represented the characteristics of the person. So when we cry out to his name, we're crying out for his mercy, for his grace, for his steadfast love. That implies we recognize that we need mercy. We don't ask for mercy unless we recognize we need mercy. In other words, that our behavior has offended God. Now, both the donning of the sackcloth, which is this coarse, uncomfortable material, and abstaining from 
of food and water were signs of the, that change in the heart, the sincerity of your repentance, remorse over your behavior. It was a dis display of how truly sorry they were. It's a recognition that they'd been ungrateful for all the undeserved blessings they had received. Nahum, the prophet who lived about the same time, proph prophesied that their behavior, the evil in their behavior was their brutality towards others and their lack of value for human life. The king's ed edict gives evidence that violence was one of the main issues. He covers the rest with that broad expression, evil ways. You know, uh, for the last, uh, I don't know, four or five years, there's been this prayer circulating on the internet, maybe you've read it, attributed to Minister Joe Wright at the opening of the Kansas State Senate. And I couldn't confirm if this was uh, actually when it happened and the name of the person and everything for sure, but uh, I think we can all agree that the prayer is appropriate for our nation. The prayer went like this, Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask forgiveness and to seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good, but that's exactly what we have done. We've lost our spiritual equilibrium and reversed our values. We've ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and called it pluralism. We've worshiped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We've endorsed perversion and called it alternative lifestyle. We've exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We've rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We've killed our unborn and called it a choice. We've shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We've neglected to discipline our children and called it building self-esteem. We've abused power and called it politics. We've embezzled public funds and called it essential expenses. We've institutionalized bribery and we call it the suites of office. We've coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We've ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today and cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Amen. President Lincoln asked the Senate to adopt a day of prayer and fasting and this was the beginning of their resolution. And I'd like, as I read it, I'd, I'd like you to think about, well, what if this was prayed today by our president or by the Senate or by even by the House of Representatives? President Lincoln wrote, it's the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, 
and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. And insomuch as we know that, by his divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world. May we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war which now desolates the land may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We've been recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We've been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We've grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we've become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power to confess our national sins and pray for clemency and forgiveness. Wouldn't you love to hear that prayer prayed today in the halls of power? It seems impossible for such an edict to be honored in our day, but if the Spirit of God comes upon the nation like it came upon Nineveh, all things are possible with God. Verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Sackcloth was the dress of poor slaves. It was made of camel or goat hair. It was the dress of those who were in mourning. Prophets often wore sackcloth to relate to the poor. The Ninevites and their animals were to wear it as a sign that they were slaves of an all-powerful creator God and were guilty before him of evil and violence. Another way of Hebrew way of expression is to mention the general and then the specifics. And in this case, the evil way from the violence. The general is the evil, which includes all acts of violating your conscience and violating acceptable behavior. But the word violence uh, was the specific evil way that's being mentioned. And the word comes from a Hebrew word that means defiance of the law by one too strong to be held to account. It meant more than just physical violence. It was used by Sarah to complain to Abraham uh, that, that he had protected Hagar that took Sarah's rights from her. In that case, it was translated just as the word wrong. For the Assyrians, this may have implied how they were violating acceptable norms of the known world in the way that they treated their conquered enemies. Their means of torture was a part of their psychological warfare that caused other nations to fear them. 
This is the case of the powerful dealing with other people inferior to themselves. Nazi Germany exemplified this type of violence in the way that they treated Jews and their attitude of being the superior race. Evolution promotes this view and was used by Hitler as a reason for purging inferior races. This sin creeps into our lives when we are prejudiced toward another race because of attitudes of our parents, personal experiences with someone of that race, or just pride in our own culture. It was a common practice of the time to include domestic animals when fasting. Now that sounds strange to us, but from their perspective, their animal was their most valuable possession and was useful to serve them. So having the animal in sackcloth showed they were submitting their animals, their most treasured possessions, in servitude to God as well. Verse 9, the king went on to say, Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. That's the last part of the king's edict. It brings up a theological conundrum, though. What we know of God, of course, comes from the revelation of his character in Scripture and the accounts we read in the Bible of his words and his actions. Can man change God's mind? The Scripture clearly tells us that God knows the end from the beginning. The revelation from Moses is clear on this matter. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Is the king of Nineveh right in saying that God may relent and turn from his face in fierce anger? Now the next verse reveals that his hope was well-founded. So how are we to understand this apparent contradiction? Scripture helps us understand Scripture. Listen to what God spoke through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. As explained in a previous message, the warning of a set period of time before destruction implied there was time to change their ways. It, it may be that there was more to Jonah's message than we read about. Verse 5 just may be a summary of his main point. He may have preached that there was hope if they repented. But God knew they would repent. And as we'll see in chapter 4, Jonah suspected that they were going to repent. He, you know, he's probably the only preacher who ever was disappointed that people received the message. <laughs> we will see that in, uh, in the next chapter. His warnings are what would happen if we do not change. So from our human perspective, it seems that God changed his mind. And we call that anthropomorphic expression. In other words, we think of God like we think of a man, but God's not a man. The next verse even tells us God relented 
And yet, that was what he knew they would do and how his word declares he will respond. It's similar to predestination and free will, one of those issues we get all tied in knots about. God gave us the freedom to choose, and yet he knows the choice we will make because he exists in the eternal now. All of time is before him in an instant. It's for our sake that he warned the Ninevites, that he warns us and invites us to repent. It's only our limited understanding and unfamiliarity with that timeless realm that sees these things as contradictions. Would God have destroyed Nineveh if they didn't repent? Absolutely. Yet God knew they would change their ways. His warning was an invitation to change. Will you and I perish if we do not repent? Yes. But thank God for Jesus and that he's taken the wrath for us, that we've repented and hopefully we change our ways, which is evidence of true repentance. This does not limit free will or enslave us to predestination. It merely reveals the wonder of God outside of time. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do, and he did not do it. So this sentence is all of the book of, some people say Jonah is one of the most beautifully written Hebrew books in the Bible. But, but I just want to give you a little illustration of, of the poetry in it. We call it chiastic poetry. Go ahead and go to the next slide. This sentence is written in, in that style of poetry. God saw what they did, how from their evil they turned. God turned from the evil he planned for them and did not do it. You see how it reverses order. A, B, C, C, B, A. That, that Hebrews write that way a lot. Evil in the second case is different word usage from the first usage because God's never immoral. In the second case, ESV translates evil as calamity, and that's an appropriate translation for the same word, which can have multiple meanings in Hebrew. It's kind of like our word bad. Bad may imply immorality or something, some kind of evil that's immoral, but it also can just mean something that you dislike or is uncomfortable. The second use of the word turned in this case is a different word from the first turned. In the first usage, it implies, it implies compassion and change. The fruit of true repentance was evident in how they turned from evil. If there's no turning from evil, there's no genuine repentance. The sackcloth and fasting meant nothing if they did not change. And it's the same with coming to Christ. If we say we've repented, if we say the magic words, Jesus come into my heart, but there's no change in our life, we didn't really mean it. We were just going through 
the motion, the ritual, the saying the right words. But if our heart is truly wanting to turn around and go a different direction and we're truly asking, take over my life, then our life will change. From our human perspective, God relented or turned from the disaster he said that he would do. Now that Hebrew word for relented has 29 different translations in the English Bible. So we, with our analytical Western minds, we'd like to nail it down to one specific meaning and see a contradiction, but it's perfectly in accord with the nature of God and what God said he would do through the prophet Jeremiah. But there's one more problem that's important to address in this passage. Can sins be wiped away by simply repenting and changing our ways? Can all the bad we do be erased by the good that we do? Can we be good enough to cover all the wrongs we've done? What court would tell a person who committed first-degree murder that he's changed, so it's okay, he can go free? If God is just, there has to be a penalty for the violence that the Ninevites have done. This is where we again look at the timeliness, timelessness of God. 700 years later, Jesus would die for the sins of mankind. Every repentant soul who changed their ways throughout time had their sins penalty paid for on the cross, past, present, and future. They looked to Elohim, God the Creator, and He provided in the future a means for their salvation, just as He did for Abraham and for David, as well as for you and me. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord, shall be saved. This was Jonah's story as well. <laughs> he rebelled against God. And we talked about in the Bible study this morning, we talked about how <laughs> when he took that boat to Tarshish, he, he was just defiant of God. He was saying, I'm not going to do what God wants. No way. I'm out of here. I'm going to go live a different life in a different country. To heck with God. I mean, he couldn't be any more defiant. And yet, thank God for his grace and mercy. Amen? God wasn't done with Jonah. And he's not done with us. God brought calamity on Jonah and took him to death's door, and Jonah turned from his evil. The compassion of God brought him to the shore so he could live out that change. It's a story of everyone who's been willing to see how rebellious and selfish we are and turn from our evil ways. God brings the storms to turn us. If we repent and turn, if there's a change, God relents from carrying out his righteous judgment. But it was eventually carried out upon our Savior. Never forget that it's only possible because Jesus took the punishment we deserved. The Ninevites did not know that. I don't think Abraham or David understood it, but we do. And how grateful we should be that Jesus demonstrated the great love of God 
the greatness of his compassion by taking on himself what we deserve. Nineveh was spared. There's a warning for us here. A little over 100 years later, Nineveh would be completely wiped out. It failed to pass on to future generations the need to turn from our evil ways. And what a warning to us to be sure that we're faithful to teach our children and our children's children that God is just. We will pay for our sins or we'll accept what Jesus did for us and change our evil ways. And as Jory mentioned in the call to worship, the Lord will sanctify us. Amen? Amen. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you for the story, this account of Jonah and what the wonder of what you did in Nineveh and how you can turn the wickedest of nations and turn them around. Lord, we pray that for our own country. We ask for your spirit to move upon our nation, to bring genuine repentance, and let it begin in me. Help us be still and hear from you the things that need to change. And give us willing hearts, Lord, to make those changes by the power of your spirit. Thank you, Lord, for that song we sang earlier, Resurrection Power. That's what gives us the ability to change the resurrected life of Jesus in us. And we praise you and thank you for that. Help us be willing to let that power work in our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, Lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. God bless you.